Don't have a bad setting. Podcast over. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. My name is Nathan Paletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. What are we talking about on the Design Games Podcast this time? This time we're embarking on a series of conversations about setting and its role in your design process. How often have you either not played a game or even just not picked a game up in the first place because of the setting? That's a good question. I would say conservatively, I would estimate 100,000 times. So setting is bad. We shouldn't have settings because they'll make you put down your book and no, walk away. No, no, settings are great. I've also picked up games but just because <laughs> of their settings about 100,000 times. Uh-huh. So I think that's a great question in part because I, I have absolutely turned away from games because of their settings. But I also know that I have come without generosity to the mechanics of games that have bad settings. And by bad, mm-hmm. it is vitally important that I make this clear for me. I'm going to use because I know I'm going to be lazy and use this term a couple of times. By bad setting, I mean a setting that does not interest me yes which is not the same thing as a setting that is bad at being a setting because <laughs> there are some settings that are great at being settings that do not interest me mm-hmm. yes for the purposes of this discussion it can be assumed that the term bad will always be qualified by in my personal like for what i am looking for in a game right now right right <laughs> or at now, the time yeah which probably will change by the time you hear this podcast oh yeah yeah uh, t- totally that's actually a great one of the notions right is it, because it's not just true for me i think it's, it's true for the market and it's true for you as a designer and this is why it's important to be mindful about your setting as opposed to taking anything about it for granted there are things that can appear as if you took them for granted things that are true that you just inherit from genre or whatever that's mm-hmm. that can be fine but i i always look sideways when at say gen con i ask somebody so there's you got elves in your in your fighter pilot game why are the elves there and they say oh well because it's our office kind of a shadow run hack and stuff and i just didn't take them out i go i can't go oh, that's interesting that's interesting that's a, that's a piece of trivia but if somebody says i say why are there elves in your jousting game they would say oh because you know their elves have to be in it's, it's fantasy it's a fantasy game so i had to have elves in it i go did you Examine that. Check again, which is not necessarily fair of me, but it is a thing that I will do because some things, some things are genuinely ubiquitous, and some things are just ubiquitous. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I feel like I have this conversation a lot, and it would be disingenuous to pretend that this isn't a thing. Yeah, where people put a setting together and end up not examining all the parts of it and inherit a lot of it from other things that they love, and to an outsider, which is most of us, coming to it without that love for the whatever the original influences were, mm-hmm. they go. Why are there, but why are there elves? Uh, even when, in a case like me, for example, I am a fan of Tolkien's writing and world building, and I am very wary of a lot of material that is descended from Tolkien's writing and world building that is not Middle-earth itself. There's a lot that because it was present in Middle-earth, well, then it has to be in my, nope, everything's on the table to stay or go. Everything. Everything. I don't care. I mean, I, I don't care how influenced you are by Tolkien. I don't care if you're making Shadow of Mordor, a game that is set in Middle Earth but doesn't have the Lord of the Rings logo above its name, right? Mm-hmm. That is still that, that game is actually a fascinating example. And just as a quick sort of synopsis, right? It's set in Mordor. Mm-hmm. There are some elves, and there is, I believe, an dwarf. There is one dwarf. There is a single dwarf. Mm-hmm. And in part, that's because you go, well, you know, we have to have some of this. We, we want to cover the basis so it feels like Middle Earth. And some of this stuff helps us helps it feel like Middle Earth. And now this is funny. I can't say for sure, but I'm pretty sure that the Hobbit count is zero. That's not unremarkable. They don't need, they didn't need Hobbits in that game. Mm. There are, probably aren't Hobbits in Mordor. They decided, well, then even though Hobbits are one of the defining characteristics, they're one of the only through lines from the Hobbit to Return of the King. Mm. They're one of the only things that is consistently in everything, but we don't need them. 
because that doesn't fit. Right. They took them off the table. Mm. And again, I could be wrong about that. But as an example, the fact that I can't remember now all of a sudden off the top of my head is an example that, that I mean, well, there's one. Is Gollum a hobbit anymore? But, but the point is that being mindful of what you inherit and what you don't in setting is important because when you transmit your setting to somebody else, Mm-hmm. you're immediately playing telephone with them because oh, yeah. they're going to start assuming things when you say, well, it's like Shadowrun, but I'm going to mm-hmm. assume a lot of stuff that you may not want me to assume. I mean, this is a problem you run into with, I mean, problem is a strong word. It's it's a an aspect of the human condition that you're going to run in, into anytime you're uh, introducing your game to a new audience, whatever the strength of your game that you're using to introduce it to them is, whether it is the setting, whether mm-hmm. it is the D20 mechanic. Oh, I know how D20 mechanics work. Well, mine does not work like those, except that it has a D20. It's not a capital D20, D20 system. It right. just uses a 20-sided die. Right. Yeah, yeah. Or a 3D6 system or right. a percentile system. Like when you say to somebody, this is a percentile system, and they go, oh, so it's it's BRP. I go, no. <laughs> oh, it's Unknown Armies. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. G- give me a second. Let me finish my thought. Mm. Yeah, sorry. Right. Or... This is a GMless collaborative world building game. Oh, like Microscope. Well, no, it's actually nothing like Microscope, which gets back to my bugaboo about try not to explain your game with the mechanics. But I think the setting has a similar aspect of this condition where if you explain the game with the setting, mm-hmm. then you're inviting everyone to read their understanding of that kind of setting into what you're saying. You're like, oh, it's like a dark take on modern occult conspiracy. So it's like World of Darkness? No, not really. It's like Conspiracy X? No, no, it's not that either. Call of Cthulhu Cthulhu. Delta Green stuff? No. No, no, no. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because wherever you start, this is the thing is I'm not, not to, not to come down on people who jump to that, who jump for a handrail, right? Yeah. I mean, you. That's a totally natural thing to do to say, so like World of Darkness. Yeah. You want to have an idea of how to position your understanding of a new thing. Like that's just how our brains work. We pick any three or four words to describe the setting when we start and somebody I think assumes and I, I know I do and I think it's fair to do or presumes I should say that you're trying to communicate as much as you can as fast as you can right the stuff setting especially accrues mm. and this is a very important thing more so than mechanics even mechanics are procedure they can be procedure mm-hmm. setting accrues over time mm. whether it's from world building in a novel whether it's in a rule book right it's that everything for example the strength stat leads to the attack roll leads to the damage roll leads to hit points when i'm subtracting hit points from my sheet i don't actually need to know any of the previous stuff mm-hmm. i just need to be told you lose seven hit points okay off come seven hit points. Mm. That's procedural. Setting accrues in that, and this is true whether you're talking about a room or you're talking about a world. In a movie, I can give you an establishing shot of a building and I will take in as much of that shot in my eye as I can, as fast as I can, because it's a picture. Something that is oral and social like role-playing. If I try to describe to you the establishing shot from a movie, this might happen. I might confuse you, then interest you, then bore you, then bore you to tears. And I want to stop it before we get to those last two. But it's not like I start to describe something and then I run out of time. You Mm. will be able to describe the room gradually over the course of the whole scene. Oh, there's a pool table in here so there are pool sticks yeah there are well, I don't know how many is normal for a pool there's four pool cues on the wall okay great I walk over and I grab one of the pool cues well I didn't list pool cues in the initial description but I said there was a pool table so, and so we gradually build up the space right in this context though this is a genuine question yeah yeah when you're describing the pool hall that everyone has gone into and then someone's like oh the pool cues where does this cross the line from setting as I guess the term is generally understood and I think we should probably unpack it a little bit but where does it cross the line from setting into what I use the term situation for when does it cross the line into like this is what we are doing right now versus here is the setting within which the situations are going to occur right right 
Like, is the number of pool cues because maybe that maybe that's an important cultural artifact for the world that you're in. That like there are always seven pool cues because the seventh one is never used because there's like a religion around pool or something. Or, or right? ultimately, if there are five PCs or there are five people in a room, they want to fight. There's only four pool cues. That kind of a thing, right? Right. Logistically, well, but yeah. But, well, yeah, yeah. but then, but then that situation. Yeah. In my right. So I'm time. saying that's so one of them is that's right. one end, and then the other end is yeah. And now that's created a fraught situation where you're the weapons available to you are four pool cues for five people. Right. Right. My answer to that uh, is essentially a Venn diagram with a big fuzzy messy middle. Mm-hmm. So if at one end, one circle situation and one circle is setting, where they overlap, it is impossible to tell which one is foundational. Mm-hmm. And this is what I mean. Setting, which by the way, it's important to note that when I talk about setting and I'm talking about a fictional world, a fictional environment, I use a lot of different terms for this, yeah. depending on what it is. There are mechanisms to setting in fictional products that have no games. So yes. novels have things in their setting that are considered mechanical. Movies have things in their setting that are considered mechanical. This thing exists in the setting only to get the protagonist to do the following things. It is a mechanism. It's just not a game mechanic. So let's all be careful for when I misuse or, or conflate mm-hmm. those two. But setting is where, if setting is where a thing happens, and it is, and situation is circumstances mm-hmm. of what either, both what needs to be done and therefore meaning what is not done yet mm-hmm. and how we convey it, where they overlap, each one can drive and feed the other. Mm-hmm. And in a really, really good, in my experience, like almost too hot to handle, piping hot, lively experience, whenever I have a question from one, I grab the other one to answer it. Mm-hmm. That's, um, really, that's really a good way to put it. Yeah, right. And it's, and it's not yeah. necessarily that one leads to the other mm-hmm. because I don't know where we start. But if I go, for example, like if we're in this pool hall situation and we've established in the setting book that there should be seven pool cues. Mm-hmm. And I tell them as a mystery element that there are fewer than seven, but I haven't just cemented how many there are, let's mm-hmm. say. So that they go, oh, they don't have the holy pool cue here. Whatever it is, right. there's, that they're reading something into it. And then what I realize is we're on the cusp of getting bored or a fight's about to break out and we want to make it interesting or I want to give the players an advantage or whatever it is. I say, there are one, there's one pool cue for each of you. And they go, that means there aren't any pool cues for them to fight with. And I go, that's right. First people who get to the pool cues get pool cues, mm. roll initiative or whatever it is. So, so I'm stealing from one to feed the other. Mm-hmm. Which is great. I think as a matter of playcraft is a really valuable way to think about it. It's easy to be like, to have the mental model of like the setting is what's in this book that I've already read. And then the situation is like what I've just said and they don't necessarily end up answering to each other. Right. And if you do that intentionally, you can make both richer, which is fantastic. Yeah, they almost never, they almost never agree because if a setting, if they do, then you have a boring setting mm-hmm. or you have no situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then you're out of the Venn diagram. Right. You're just into one or the other. So when you're designing your game, how do you approach making that conversation happen in the way that supports the game experience that you're aiming to deliver? A lot of what I do for that personally, and it's what I like that I've seen done before, Mm -hmm. is right on the edge also, uh, or it's in the march lands between game design and scenario design, which I think is a valid place to be Mm -hmm. in this part of the conversation because you kind of proto-design certain scenarios while you're designing your game and you go, oh, I'm going to need rules for that. Right. Or whatever. But part of it is that I make setting imperfect, by which I mean it is a world full of people that are making mistakes, because that gives the setting the ability to absorb the mistakes that the players and the GM will make, which is to say anytime they roll bad or whatever it is, th- those kind of mistakes by, was what I mean by mistakes. Too often I find settings, and this is especially true in fiction, but it's true in games as well, in which the, the thing is in perfect balance. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the whole thing is like an arch it's, and every stone is holding the other stone in place. It's in stasis kind of. Yeah. And so there's nothing happening. And when the players come in to mess it up, the setting will be messed up as opposed to coming in and absorbing it and being changed by it. It's one mm-hmm. thing if the arch just, an arch that falls down is no longer an arch. And if the 
setting of the setting is all about well, all these stones are in place and they support each other. This was, for example, one of the problems with Requiem when mm-hmm. when it was time to do campaign style stuff of Vampire the Requiem was that if you designed a system where the five covenants are in equal balance and keeping each other in play, that lasts until the first session. Right. At which point they no longer are. Mm-hmm. And that's great for everybody's campaign at home. But as a product, as soon as one of those covenants takes the lead, all the other covenant books stop selling or sell less or sell differently or whatever it is as an example, sure. right? Yeah. Also, it's a question of how you divide ideology and therefore what the game is about. But I'll get to that in a second. Yeah. But so in the notion of that is, is I make the setting as atomic as possible, which is to say that I don't have to read 20 paragraphs or 50 pages or whatever before I start developing situations. And part of that is because me as a player and as a GM, I develop situations almost immediately upon encountering fiction, upon encountering a fictional space, whatever it is. And I do it as a kid, right? This is where I would be sitting in gym class and instead of paying attention, I'd be imagining if I turn the ceiling, the weird concrete recessed lighting ceiling upside down and then miniaturize the people, how would I, how could I choreograph a lightsaber duel in it? Like what if it was a (laughs) giant ridiculous Star Wars environment when those, instead of lights, those were lava or whatever. Okay. Because I was bored and that's what I do. And I'm sure I'm not alone. But so by making it atomic so that rather than having it that I have to read a book on religion of the setting, I get setting information. And this is one of the things I love about Gumshoe. I get setting information in that moment, in that scene, in that room, mm. in this recurring motif of a place that is likely to come up in a game about whatever, in the mm. castles, in the in the behind the scenes room at the wrestling match, in the hangar and in, in Night Witches, whatever it is. Lists of objects that are likely to be there. I think this is one of the reasons that D&D, by the way, continues mm. to persist is the random tables and stuff are, are great at this. Oh, yeah. Fiasco's place, that's great at this, right? Mm. Oracle-based systems and stuff are great at this. Mm. But is that I don't have to know necessarily how all these connect. I don't have to know who's tankered is this, why did it come here, and why is the fact that this one is silver and that one is platinum, what does that mean? Right. At first, all you need to know is there are three tankards and there are three different metals. Well, that's interesting. And then I, we can build out from there. And part of that is giving me atomic information that I can recombine and know that I'm not going to be breaking something important if I have to, pardon my French, bullshit during the session right. why one is silver, one is copper, and one is platinum. I mean, I think we're, we're similar in this regard where we're comfortable taking a seed yeah. and then just spinning out whether it's uh, expository backstory, like if someone is interested, like I cast the identify spell on the silver tankard right they're like find out where it came from it's like all right uh well there's this dwarf wizard and you just come up with stuff and part of the question becomes if a player can turn to you and say dwarves can't be wizards in this setting right right yeah it's kind of like for all the we have rules about how you achieve perspective in painting i understand the procedure behind making perspective in painting great i cannot paint for shit right i'm not good at it so this is one of those areas where it's like no matter what we say here in this particular episode, right, we're going to be able to convey a lot of information that only experience is going to be able to enact oh, some sure. of it. You know sure. what I mean? And that's all. I mean, that's true for so much. But yeah. I'm just saying that for, that, that if believe me, if I knew if I knew formulas for this stuff, yeah. I would give it to you. Well, it's not. <laughs> I guess my larger point is more that it's not like there's a right answer of yeah. Oh, just do atomic situation rich setting elements and then connect the dots and play as need be. That's a style that I also like to play, yeah. and that my stuff tends to to revolve around with even less backstory rich setting mm-hmm. um, kind of stuff around it. But clearly there's an artistic goal of the rich lore filled setting. Right. There's a certain illusionism that goes on in games, obviously, but some of that is actually illusions that we make for ourselves, which is that people think, and, and for some of this is generally true, but sometimes it is not. Sometimes we confuse even ourselves. I know because I've done it to myself, but where we think, I want to be totally immersed in this setting. Okay. Despite what we've been told in RPG is not the best way to do that. RPGs can be deeply immersive and they can be immersive in a way that nothing else can be immersive. But in raw depth, the RPG is not, or 
a game of any kind. It's not necessarily the way to do that because you have to get out of it enough in order to make decisions, any de- some decisions that your character might not have to make. You are aware mm-hmm. of stuff your character is not aware of. I think fiction, prose and movies and, and radio shows and all kinds of stuff is actually more of the kind of immersion that we sometimes talk about when we talk about immersion into a setting. So when we talk about lore-rich settings, mm-hmm. in so many media that can, that can involve or include or lead to, it can accrue into a, a, an incredible density. And I don't think density is ever the best way into, mm-hmm. an, into an RPG setting, in part because like D&D settings, uh, RuneQuest, you know, I mean, Glorantha and mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Forgotten Realms and Shadowrun even, uh, lots of different settings can get so much stuff that is important to the setting but is not important to the game. Mm-hmm. That it's interesting because it helps me describe this or that. But the thing that, that is when you come at it from a mechanical sense, and you go, well, what does that look like? And the answer is, well, because of what it says in book nine, then I'm out, mm-hmm. right? So for me, it's a matter of what does it look like? Well, it looks like uh, uh, my character's my character's about this, so I want to be able to cast a spell that looks like it came from my character. An right. example is that what Magic Missile actually looks like or Burning Hands actually looks like mm-hmm. is, is not completely irrelevant, but it's close to irrelevant in the sense that there's lots of ways to, to flavor it. Yeah. And so to a certain extent, and that's again, spells are atomic units of setting in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah. I would argue are are a key point to, to imply setting. Like to that's, start, yeah. To, or yeah. to start. I mean, yeah. I think that's because that's the... Parts of setting, yeah. I mean, that's where my interest is. Like what I find most valuable for me is in using the parts of the game that you're going to be handling during play, mm-hmm. using those to imply or reveal or create the, the context in which they exist. And that's the setting. You can probably hear in this conversation that you are have spent a lot more time both writing and thinking about setting as as a uh, compelling, actionable thing to do in play. Yeah. Uh, while I tend to either set my set my stuff in the real world in a certain time frame or a certain location, or make either setting agnostic or world building at the front. Right. Kind of things because I am not particularly interested in writing about a, a bunch of words about what the world is like. Mm-hmm. I think in large part because a lot of my experiences with more intentional settings have been ones where they didn't end up really mattering. Yeah, which I, which is I would say a risk, but that's a it's also the reward for some people. Right. I mean, it's been a reward for me in the past. I want to say some people like mm-hmm. it's a pejorative thing, right? That sometimes discovery of a world is its own reward. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. But when you have limited play time mm-hmm. or you're there to exercise certain creative muscles and to find out that something has already been created and therefore I can't create it, which I think is the number one point where players come into friction with a setting. Mm-hmm. If somebody says, am I allowed to make this true? And the answer is no, because Doug got there first. Who's Doug? Oh, he wrote the book. I don't care. I don't know, Doug. What about for our game here at this table? Right. But part of that that element to me, I think that's important, and this is why I have a question for you on this, is mm-hmm. when creativity and the creation of world is part of the thing, which but there's a certain amount of setting then that gets that gets moved into playcraft, right? Yes. Which is completely legit and some games are great at it and some games can't live without it, which is again, you know, fine and terrific. It's interesting to me because to me writing about setting is often like play, not actual play of like the game, but it's fun. It's a it's mm-hmm. I get to invent because also I try to approach game writing or setting design more like a travel writer mm-hmm. than I do like a designer. Sure. When in the actual writing stage, I do a lot of design work, but then I love the travel writing notion of this place is here and this is what it looks like and I came to it with an agenda which was either to, you know, find a place to sleep or whatever, and that's again a creating situation. Mm-hmm. But as um, why do you think that you are as attracted to playcraft-oriented setting as you are, like to world to, to games that build their setting during play? I find sometimes that that I'll play with players for whom world building is terrifying, and so those that's what makes those games less accessible. I think ultimately 
it's great when they because I think more people are good at it than they think they are. But how mm-hmm. much of your how much of your playcraft ability to invent setting on the fly affects your design decisions there? I mean, I think it strongly it strongly influences my design because I design games that I want to play, right? Right. For the most part. So to me, this is this is a, a position that I take without trying to throw shade at other positions. I'm I'm not trying to cut the conversation down to I do it like this and you do it like this. But for me, the only stuff that really matters is what we do at the table. Mm-hmm. The only stuff about the game that really ends up being meaningful to me is what we see when we sit down to play. That includes mechanics. Like if we never see a mechanic in play, then that doesn't matter to me. It might matter like as a as a designer or, or in a in a sense of research or of inspiration, that kind of thing as a reader, it may matter, but in terms of the play experience, um, if it doesn't hit the table, I just don't care. That includes mechanics and I feel like setting generally is the thing that that doesn't matter the most when I'm playing a mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. Characters tend to matter a lot. The situation matters a lot. Informed by setting, as we've talked about, the the rules of the game, the the the, the system tends to matter a decent amount depending on the game. And then a lot of the setting stuff is like it's either here's here's something set in the real world, so I can look up things if I need something, and if I don't need something, we all kind of have a shared cultural sense of what's likely to happen, what's likely to be in a place, how long it takes to get from place to place. Right. All these shorthands that we can just use and play and move on, or if it's like a pastiche kind of like this is a sword and sorcery Conan adventure it's like all right I know the bounds of what I can just throw out there and not have it be problematic and what stuff is probably I should just not contribute because it's going to throw off the the vibe that I think is is happening and in neither of those cases is the setting as written down even if it is as a travelogue or is as a gazetteer necessarily super relevant that's interesting. I think, I mean, I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. And I, I, I agree, like at every step, I therefore arrived at a different conclusion, mm-hmm. which is that for me, it was, I don't get cognitive, cognitive dissonance with fictional worlds very well. I can hold 10 different versions of Middle Earth and it's fine. It doesn't mm-hmm. bother me, right? So it's the same reason that it doesn't bother me when a sequel comes out to something that I don't like. Mm-hmm. I go, well, whatever. I just, I still like the first three or whatever it is. And there's a world in which the three exist and there's a world in which there's a fourth one and whatever, they're different worlds. Yeah. And we can play in just any one of them or whatever you want. And that's because play is most important to me in the moment of play and often in the aftermath. But setting as its own separate thing is also important to me, but they are almost identical, but they're actually don't, not in contact. Hmm. Information shuttles from one to the other. Hmm. And that's because I don't work on a lot of licensed material in which my work is canon. So I'm very comfortable saying that I can write about the blue wizards in Middle Earth or something, but that right. it's never actually going to go back and change Tolkien's work. So part of it to me is that they're, they're, they're separate enough that I can like a rich setting and a heavily static setting, a setting that is kind of locked, like Middle Earth. There's no new canon for Middle Earth coming, I hope, but that's a fairly fixed setting. Mm-hmm. But I love all the stuff also that we can do that shakes it loose for the purposes of this game or that game or this movie or whatever it is. I go, well, those Hobbit movies are really kind of lousy adaptations, but they're pretty good fanfic, which is just me being, you know, a jerk. But the, the point to me where there's the most contact between our two perspectives yeah. is in the character and the conversation. Maybe we should talk about for a minute. We played a game. You ran the one ring. Yeah. And I played in it. We only happened to be able to do the one session. Right. Which it was unfortunate. Yeah. But I think that may be a, a interesting point for discussion because I was like, okay, I, I played a, I made a Bjorning, a bear shifting, honey cakes baking mm-hmm. warrior man, which was fantastic, um, and which I know about, right? Because I've read The Hobbit, I, I I know my my Tolkien, you know, I'm pretty up on the on the source, but I've not read The One Ring, so mm-hmm. I actually have very little information about how much additional world building it does versus saying here's the game it's set in this particular time period that is like not one-to-one with the books right. with the with, with Tolkien's written work so they don't make my character that I really like and the scenario 
that our fellowship was a part of was fairly straightforward. I think grabby, Tolkien-y, like a uh, Hobbit-y. Mm-hmm. Like it, 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 the vibe to me was was very much of we are going off on this adventure to do this thing, and less here's this epic world quest thing. Right. The mechanics of the game were interesting, and I was very interested in in seeing how they worked and the fellowship mechanics in particular, the inner party mechanics, all that stuff. And in that game, I think there was a pretty strong sh- shared sense of here's how this world works. So to you, are there additional elements from the side of running the game that the One Ring itself provides that are part of its setting or its take on mm-hmm. the Middle Earth setting that, that either were just so appropriate that like nothing popped up to me as like, oh, that's weird. How that's, that's how this world works. Right. Or was it all just this shared understanding of this universe that we all already knew from the source fiction? Because we know Middle Earth and we know that we're not playing canon. We're not writing Tolkien. We're not Tolkien. Right. Two things become possible. One is that I, I'm a big believer in the fact that as a role player, one of the role playing jobs the DM does generally, and, other, and players can often involve themselves in a lot of great games, is pretending to be Tolkien. I'm role playing as Tolkien in addition to role playing hmm. as Legolas, mm-hmm. which is to say I get to imagine what is it like to let's pretend I knew Finnish and I knew Icelandic and I knew all the great lore and stuff that Tolkien knew and I'm building a world. That's part of the fun of making a D&D campaign or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? Is playing as Tolkien. And then playing in a Middle Earth games, I get to play literally with the very same words that Tolkien used. And in playing in Middle Earth, when both the books and the movies and everything exist simultaneously, means that the set, one of the set things that the setting is doing is giving us a lot of lingo and, and sand and the box mm-hmm. with which to play with. Which is like you said with, with Conan, where you know, I know not to do this because that would, that would throw off the vibe. Well, that's because you've essentially done enough of the reading on the setting right. and that, that it was, reading was fun to do. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, Conan stories don't mean anything to you mm. because you don't, you're not beholden to them. And on the other hand, they're vital for explaining what you should or should not say during Swords Without Master. Sure, yeah. Okay, any other setting is the same way, mm. in my opinion. It's just that, there were, they, just that we have two or three or ten of them called Middle-Earth. And one of them was written by Tolkien and one of them was written by Tolkien mm. and Nathan and one of them was written by Tolkien and Nathan and Cubicle 7 or whatever it is. Okay. So that, that overlap, that ability to kind of hold multiple versions of a setting at once is important to me. Mm. And I think that without making it academic for the, for the players, making it so that it's easy to do without necessarily fretting about, well, wait, are we in right now it doesn't matter you're playing your game you're doing everything you're doing your thing but it gives you it gives you things to say so the question for design then is and this isn't a question for will necessarily this is one of the questions for all of us as designers think about yeah how do you enable the table to establish the vibe right right how do you enable the players of your game? How do they know what's in bounds and what's out of bounds? And the question of without reading 200 pages of setting, exactly. I think for a lot of people, especially people with lots of things calling on their time and stuff, mm-hmm. that question becomes more and more, how do I do that without having to read the books? Right. Well, like high school me, oh, you know, yeah. I read all the books, yeah. right? So like, it's not a question of how do you do it this way or how do you do it that way? But I think kind of where I'm coming to out of this conversation is the value of the setting is is establishing that what's in bounds, what's out of bounds. Right. Which can be established in other ways, and I think all the elements of the game speak to each other about doing this, but this is a particularly strong way to do it, and how to do it is the design part. So licensed RPGs, or RPGs for any pre-existing world, have a cheat, which is that there's a ton of material we may have already read. Star Wars, for example, a bunch Mm -hmm. of movies already seen, whatever, and that's that's not, I mean, I say cheat just only in the sense that I know what Star Wars feels like because I've seen the movies. Right. Right? I don't actually need setting material in the books necessarily, and often don't want it, um, because I'm going off this other source material. Right. One of the ways that, that to make that delivery smooth and fast
fast and so that it is rewarding to do not necessarily more reading, but the amount of reading you want to do, which is mm-hmm. to say that you want, if somebody's like, oh, I could read 10 pages about the economic system on this. Yeah. Then on one hand, I want to be able to make sure that those 10 pages both exist so that you can read it and B, are nowhere in your way if you don't want to read it. Mm-hmm. They're not, you're not going to trip on them. But so part of that process, Dark is a good example of this to me because I think it's, it answers both Robin Laws's issue, what are the characters and what do they do, which is to say, who are they and what do they talk about as part of it. And so make sure they have words that with which that they can speak in fun ways about this. Shadowrun does this right. It gives a lot of little bits of jargon that are easy to know, but also feel genuine. Mm-hmm. Um, Cyberpunk stuff does this a lot um, in lots of different ways. And Middle Earth gives you just tons of material to draw on, but it's actually not organized in a way that is about the game. So the game has to be about what Middle Earth is about. That's how you, that, that's where it comes into contact with characters. Mm-hmm. So part of this to me is is you can have an overriding metaphor that makes that makes it clear why this game is about these characters. It's what I do in Dark. On the one hand, I have this this whole tree of civilization motif, and that you can look at that and get a sense of the whole social structure of the society. It's a giant metaphor, and the characters in the setting are aware of the metaphor. Mm-hmm. And then also the fact that that gives us that the royal family or the noble families are all birds. They take on bird names and mm-hmm. stuff to indicate that they're high up in the tree. There's a system to it, which means that it draws you towards the sand and away from the edges. The other way is also viable where you say, well, if you ever use, if you ever have somebody hand somebody else a piece of paper in a Star Wars movie, you've done it wrong. Right. It doesn't exist. It won't feel like Star Wars and whatever. Whether that's true or bullshit, that's a thing, right? I played a game that was set underwater and there were shipping documents and I'm like, what the hell are they made out of? Right. right? Yeah. Uh, okay. And that's not a like a rule, but it's a matter of I'm like, it got me out of it for a while. Um, and so when you have some of those boundaries, you can uh, draw attention to the boundaries or attention to the middle and you can try to balance it perfectly, but that doesn't, that's not great orientation. It doesn't mm. help the players understand what to look at. I like to draw people towards the middle mm. so that they know that I can, if I make up a new royal family, I can give it a name of a bird and it will feel like it's of a piece and I can then derive from that some of how they see themselves and then I can do blank and now I have yeah. kind of a procedure to the setting. I mean, I think as a as a general principle, designing towards things is both easier and more productive than designing away from, away from things. Yeah. And that's both behavior, like designing to encourage things is often more productive than designing to stop behavior. Right. And I think this also intersects back with implying setting through mechanics. Because you're touching the mechanics and using them, that's where you can have your some of your world building or some of your setting arise out of. And that's all kind of suctioning in towards the middle as opposed right. to like, here's all the rules. Oh, and make sure you never say anything about whales. I was going to say that exactly, right? That's the thing where if you designing, and this is, a, this is especially true, I think this is as true in setting as it is in game design, in mechanics design, and it gets overlooked too much. People very often, if you like design setting for vibe, by saying what a setting is not. Mm -hmm. That's like, don't think of an elephant, right? You can't do that. You can't, it doesn't work. I mean, it's not that you can't do it. It's just that it's not going to be effective. And it's similarly in the same way that you don't design mechanics for what doesn't happen in your game, right? You don't design a mechanic to make sure X never happens because mm-hmm. now you've designed a mechanic for it. So somebody's going to want to mess with it. As an example, d and not about farming. There are farmers in D&D sessions. Their job is primarily to be eaten by werewolves or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have to know how they work. We don't worry about it. The game has no systems about it, but we know that there are farmers. So they can be both present in the setting. It's not like you can't talk about it, but they're not present in the word count about the setting really. Uh, and again, D&D's borrowing so much from things that we know just from core fantasy and, and all that stuff. As another example, an oft, oft noted example in Burning wheel mm-hmm. you have to pay money for shoes right your character starts off with nothing with no equipment you start off with some some resources and that represents your gold that you have to spend on stuff and you start off with no clothing and no shoes or you start off with rags i think you, you get rags yeah. for free and no shoes and nowhere in the book does it say you know in this setting people are you know there's lots of really poor people you know, there's not a lot of industry or commerce or things that we associate with more like high fantasy or late middle ages kind of stuff. Like it is this other version where like people are poor and dirty and hungry 
and you have to spend money on shoes and that trips people up because they're like but it's my it's my protagonist it's my character he should ha- he should be able to wear what he wants at least this setting does not acknowledge your that's not what the game is about yeah it's not what the game is about the game is about struggling and the first struggle is do I spend one of my hard earned resource right. points on getting some shoes or do I not because there's something else I want to buy it's also a game right about important choices <laughs> right and that's like it's a little like of a haha kind of thing but I think it's it's a it's doing a job it, it's doing a job and people notice yeah. and people talk about it how many, builds that that sense of what that world is like how many fighters are there in a D&D world how many <laughs> clerics are there well it's like is everybody who has a holy symbol a cleric I don't know yeah. right it depends on your campaign is an individual instance of you making these kind of design decisions. As opposed to kind of like the guidelines in World of Darkness about here's how many vampires there are in the world. Right. Which was a range that was stated in various supplements. We, various... we, are, we, we argued and fought with it a, about it a lot and it was oft disregarded and then we were blamed for it, which is legit because we, both we raised the both ways. Exactly. Right. Because exactly. both the way you said there weren't this many vampires, but in Chicago by night, there's like 400 vampires in Chicago. Right. Or, oh, wait, there are all these vampires, but our game only has, we, we want to be special. Like in our game, they're special. So right. why are there so many? That's part of the implied. beauty in, in, in the New World of Darkness. It was part of the beauty about making the cities as standalone as they were because they were like right. able to make little campaigns pains for themselves. But this is also, again, so this is characters where setting and game mechanics really collide mm-hmm. in an RPG. And this is where the rubber meets the road, if you'll pardon the expression. And so the, let me first ask, are characters setting or situation? I reject the premise that they must be one of them. Sure, totally. But that said, they exist in a setting and engage in the situation. Right. So the player characters are absolutely in the middle of the Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. They're both, right? Because they emerge from the setting Mm -hmm. and interact with the situation. And they're in contact with the situation. And they may create situations. And they may create more setting. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now... Either everybody in your game world is in that overlap in the Venn diagram, or more likely, they are not. But there's a mistake that is often made, which is that, oh, they're not. So they most of them are probably over in setting, right? They're wherever the hell you want oh, them to yeah. be, right? Certain characters exist mm-hmm. solely for the purpose of creating a situation. You go, well, so then does that, like, for example, somebody says, well, there must be then a whole network of these people. No, people can be outliers. Don't worry about it. You don't need a whole, the Bothans don't all have to be information brokers because of one line in Return of the Jedi. And uh, <laughs> another place of this, that you can see this pretty clearly, again, is in Apocalypse World, where certain playbooks have certain non-player characters that come into existence because you're playing that playbook. Right. Like, if you are the chopper, you get a gang. And right. And if you are the hard holder, uh, I think you formally get like a lieutenant or something i don't remember exactly but you get some some other characters if you're the maestro d you get to create some setting you get to create your nightclub or whatever it is exactly you also have relationships to other characters that dynamic where it's not like you're it's not like there's a, a a gang in search of a leader because the playbook exists right like you say they come into being when somebody plays the playbook right and then once they're once they're in play there are gangs that are just part of the setting mm-hmm. and then there are gangs that are part of the situation if that character from that playbook played by that player is killed what happens to the gang they may migrate entirely from situation or from the middle into setting right and now we know that they're out there and now individually or together they might move around or in that game you can stop playing the chopper and play one of the members of the chopper's gang right. as a different character. Right. So one of them be- yeah, I guess becomes, elevated and yeah, everybody becomes else's. a character. Yeah. Yeah. And also because characters, right? So are there paladins in my D&D campaign? Well, a player wants to play one. Well, so there, there's at least one now and if there's only one then I need the setting to reflect that there's only one and why there's only one and where he comes from and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So setting is again, situation feeds, drives setting mm-hmm. and you want there to be 
be as little setting, I think, pre-written for situation as possible, which is not zero. It's actually not a very lean amount, but there's a notion, I think, where people overwrite setting in an attempt to address every situation they can imagine would happen in this game before they get there. First of all, you're never going to do that. It's never going to work. And second of all, you're going to waste a ton of time and energy closing off options that are going to be fun to answer in the moment. When we've established from both your vision and your mind map and your inspiration and your actual play and the documents you've got so far, wherever, whatever step you're in, but you've got some sense of what your game is about. And it's mm -hmm. about Insomniac Fighter Pilots. So actually, this is a great point to bring in Robin Laws' classic example. Who are you and what do you do? Mm -hmm. Right? So you are Insomniac Fighter Pilots who fly planes in dogfights. Okay. So there's a lot we don't need to know about mm -hmm. the bottom of the ocean and stuff. There's a lot we don't need to know about necessarily like farming practices. So the question is, start from what the game is about and make not necessarily the entire world, although that can be that can happen. Determine if I'm sitting in the cockpit, what can I see and hear? Mm. And why is that of interest to the player and or their character? And so part of it is making the setting about what the game is about mm -hmm. or noticeably, detectably and intentionally otherwise so that they're in conflict, yeah. which is, I think, actually kind of 300 level stuff to do. It's kind of hard to do to make mm. a, ga a game that is not about its to make a setting that is not about its game really, really work. That way of phrasing it is very compelling to me. Mm. Make your setting about what your game is about. That will help make it so that the conversations that, that the players and the characters are going to have fit smoothly into the setting yeah. is part of it. The trick, right, the thing that you can get better at over time as a designer mm -hmm. is recognizing what parts of the setting that you're writing close off options mm -hmm. and which service platforms for all these other things that we've been talking about. For creating or addressing situation during play, yeah. And so I think a big part of that is realizing that setting is actually about potentiality and that's about driving play, what characters can do and how players can describe it, what people can talk about doing and why they would do it. And so messy settings can be great, fairly clean settings can be great, but the setting and the game and the setting and the situation are constantly interacting or else something is not pulling its weight. Thank you for listening to the Design Games Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please consider supporting either myself or Will at either of our respective Patreons. I am at patreon.com slash wordwill and Nathan is at patreon.com slash ndpaletta. You can find all of our older episodes, as well as everything else Design Games Podcast related, at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...